so again, it's, it's great to have you here, uh, Alan. Thanks a lot for, for taking the time to, to join and, and share kind of like your experience uh, doing authorization at Airbnb. Uh, but before we get started, uh, what, what I usually ask people is like, tell us a bit about um, what you do at Airbnb, kind of like what your role is, what your team does to kind of like share some context. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I've been working at Airbnb for about five years now, working across basically the the user authentication and authorization stacks. Um, I've worked on everything. Started with preventing ATOs, um, then moved to building the authorization infrastructure, which is Hemeji based on Zanzibar. Um, also work a little bit on user authentication. Yeah, just a software engineer. Good, good. Uh, that's great to hear that. And then again, you're, you're definitely kind of like uh, a person with expertise in the space. Uh, for anyone listening, ATOs are uh, account takeover attacks. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, w- why uh, why are we chatting? Why are uh, authorization, why is, why is authorization, why are permissions important for the Airbnb from like a business perspective? Yeah, it comes down to... Um, basically the need to expand the business model from just a single guest and a single host making reservations with each other. Um, As the business needs to introduce more concepts that require authorization, for example, co-hosting, teams, co-traveling, business travel, and so on, all of this introduces more users into the fray of who is allowed to view what sensitive data about a trip about a listing about another user um, and building out that authorization model at scale correctly um, that introduced a lot of complexity and made authorization really a core part of our tech stack very quickly. Okay. It's, it's very interesting. So this was kind of like not a, a feature that uh, RWMB, the product, the company started with, but more something that you, you grew towards uh, can you give us an example of like how authorization works with like co-hosting or teams or business travel? Like maybe one of those so that people can understand, oh, this is where authorization is happening. Yeah. So traditionally, you know, when you go on Airbnb as a guest, you're going to book a listing that gives you a reservation that creates a trip that you're going to travel on. Um, you get to know the listing details over time as you get closer to check-in. Um, and you've got to interact with the host. The host is going to send you messages, um, they'll uh, expose some information to you. You get to know more about the host once your your reservation is confirmed. Once there's more than one host in the picture, there's a lot more product complexity and uh, policy and authorization decisions to be made. For example, a co-host might need to do everything that a host can do. They need to interact with guests. They need to update the listing information, send the Wi-Fi details over and all of that. the co-host needs to see all the listings that they're managing aside from just, in, as opposed to just like a host who creates and manages listing, a co-host can manage things for many different hosts. Um, and all of this like many to many authorization, entity to entity authorization model uh, just leads to it being a core concern for Airbnb where it has to work correctly. Otherwise the product doesn't work and it has to work quickly. Otherwise the product is slow. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. So kind of like the, these uh, more kind of like collaboration economy scenarios, 
brought the need for collaboration like features within the product and then that's where like authorization at this kind of like scale starts to kind of like become a pain potentially right because you have in lots of co-hosts lots of uh, listings lots of ways in which those can be related and kind of like you, you seem to hint that it's not just about can we get this right but can we get this done right fast because that probably impacts your bottom line Right. And if we don't do it efficiently either, uh, like say we're just generating a lot of load on our databases and systems that generates real life, um, just compute costs and all of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. So uh, you, you mentioned kind of like the, the, the rise of complexity in an original implementation. And I know kind of like back in April, you and the team wrote a blog post sharing how you kind of like revamped the permission system. Uh, mm -hmm. What issues did you have kind of like before implementing this new per permission system? Yeah. Um, yeah, we we're basically coming from a world where the permission system had been built bit by bit uh, over time as each new product arrived. Um, everyone just trying to figure out how to best add it to the existing permissions checks that were just scattered across um, at the API layer and across services and so on. Uh, the issue is we basically saw a situation where the, the velocity at which these new business needs came up was really greatly exceeding the ability of everyone to make these changes. Um, once the overall engineering systems become complex enough, you know, um, when a business need comes up, like we got to enable this new feature um, that involves authorization. Um, the team that has to implement the feature has to go and look at every single place where a permissions check could be happening and update it. And that just quickly became non-scalable as this is not just limited to like collaborative features, but as we start posing like policies, like when listings get restricted or so on. Um, all of these new ideas that require authorization um, just kind of run into just the engineering effort brick wall. Yeah, that makes seems that like as uh, like the system organically grew and, and complexity also uh, grew with it, it was hard for engineering and product teams to make changes because of that complexity. And it probably was easy to make mistakes. It, small changes probably required making numerous changes across the product and, and kind of like you were hitting all of these bumps from that organic growth. Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah. So I guess kind of like improving that uh, engineering and product velocity was a goal with, with this new implementation. Uh, what other goals did you have with uh, kind of like this new system, Himeji, that, that you built? How, how did you start thinking about those? I think the other really big goal that we were targeting was just to tighten up data security. <clears throat> uh, it's like a huge topic and it's growing more and more every year um, as we see more companies having data breaches and facing the consequences of them. Um, we just saw that every new product that came out had to go through a rather um, difficult and lengthy security review process for us to make sure that the data was safe and it wasn't being 
uh, improperly exposed. And that audit gets tricky to do at scale without data security being implicitly designed into the way the entire system works. Um, you know, there's a lot of consequences for data breaches nowadays, and we wanted to just really lock down and make sure that it's really easy for everyone to do the secure thing and also um, make the product as correct as possible all the time and just minimize the amount of defects and poor user experiences that happen when permissions are inconsistent. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So there, there's an aspect there of like, again, making things easier internally for, for a lot of other uh, engineering teams uh, across the company. That's kind mm -hmm. of like more of a platform-like vision uh, for, for what you build, right? It's not that you're building something for all, your own team's use, you're building something for other engineers to use. Exactly. And that's how we envisioned uh, Himeji to be used and how it is used today. It's effectively primarily a platform um, so what other options did you explore before kind of like the one you landed on with the, the Sansiwar-based approach? Uh, what did you research and, and what, what made you go with uh, Sansiwar-like approach over other things? Yeah. Um, we had a relatively long phase over the course of, I would say, maybe like a year or two of just exploring other approaches and trying to build other systems around say like groups and role-based access control um and we came to the conclusion um that basically you need relationship-based entity-to-entity authorization um and kind of the the more primitive forms of roles and uh just like ad hoc permissions written into tables on on models and just trying to like glue that all together um while it's incrementally less work in like the short term we realized it just wasn't tenable in the long term so we, we tried out a lot of things um related to just trying to like build authorization services that weren't necessarily like a full zanzibar and we realized that you know you kind of just have to commit all the way and basically build the whole zanzibar system to to really make something sustainable in the long term Okay, so, so this is kind of like where we're, we're starting to get in, into the meat of this. Uh, we're talking about Zanzibar. Um, can you briefly describe what, what you mean by that? And, and, and again, I'm familiar with that because we're, we're building it as a, as a SaaS. Uh, it's been built by you, but by Carta. Uh, there are other companies uh, building this as a SaaS. There are open source implementations of this. But for, for anyone that hasn't heard of it, uh, how would you describe uh, Zanzibar and, and the Google Zanzibar model? That's a really interesting question. Um, really, for us, Zanzibar is about the flexibility of combining um, a few things. The first is to model permissions based on relationships. The second is to configure permissions based on like a flexible um, algebra as opposed to code and as opposed to just like um, relying on the relationships for everything. And the third is to centralize everything as in one place um, with the main motivator for that being consistency and speed. Uh, Zanzibar is so incredibly fast that you can have it at the data layer 
so that you can solve all your data security concerns by running your rules at the data layer. Um, so you kind of have this like safe peace of mind that you're not going to mess up and like um, rely on upstream clients to behave perfectly correctly to protect your company from uh, from disaster. Yeah, I, I like how you went through those because it's, it's also kind of like how, how I usually kind of like explain Sansiwa, right? Instead of basing your authorization decision on, on a user's role or on the users and the object's attributes, what you do is you base them on the relations that, that they have. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and you need to do those three things, right? You define your authorization model, meaning that it's, it's flexible. At the same time, um, you use kind of like that uh, set algebra for declarations, which uh, prevents you from sh shooting yourself in the foot. And it has some very interesting kind of like reverse indexing uh, grammar capability so that you can ask questions like what objects does a user have access to? Uh, and then, of course, the, the notions around the, the, the latency, right? If you do this right, if you implement the concepts from the paper, if you also limit the interface and the, the grammar, you get a very powerful, very fast implementation, uh, which is kind of like what you were also looking for. Yep, exactly. So um, kind of like getting into the, the weeds, what was, what's the architecture of, of the system? And, and we, you talk about this a bit on the blog post, but I, I would like to, for people to kind of like hear it and also uh, start kind of like digging into the different components and, and what made you pick each of those. Yeah, I think actually Zanzibar conceptually is um, pretty simple. It's the, the really core part of the architecture is a tuple store. Um, for us, this is a database for Google that's Spanner, um, a cache, which is really critical to uh, your ability to scale and make things fast. Um, in Zanzibar's case, the really core component of this cache is that it's not like a look-aside cache. It's integrated into your read path. Um, the, the cache itself should be responsible for both storing data and um, hydrating data in the case of misses to prevent stampeding herd problems. And then the third um, piece of architecture just building from the ground up is uh, the servers themselves that have to take requests, interpret the request with the configuration to determine what data it needs to fetch and how to resolve it, and basically resolve the check to, um, using the okay. configuration and the data fetched. Okay, okay. So we, we talk about like a couple of interesting components. We talked about, again, the data is about the cache, the database mm -hmm. stores tuples. Um, and then we have the cache, and the cache kind of like reflects uh, the queries that you perform against the system. It doesn't store the tuples itself, but mm. it, it stores data about like, hey, does, does this user have access to this listing, or can this uh, can this host perform this action on, on this chat? Um, what what were your uh, technology decisions here? For example, uh, you mentioned Google uses Spanner. What database did you pick? Uh, and what are the scaling characteristics? The same thing for the cache. What technology do you use for the cache? Yeah, this is where we <laughs> we had to do a little bit of exploration and try to figure out what would work best for us at a cost on a cost effectiveness basis. So for the core tuple storage, we ended up using RDS. Uh, this is 
not the perfect solution. Um, we had obviously like Spanner, um, but it works because it's cost efficient for Airbnb. Um, as opposed to something like Dynamo, just because of the way uh, Airbnb's contracts and AWS uh, architecture is set up. Uh, the the downside of us picking um, RDS for our tuple store is we just have to be really good about our cache hit rate uh, because RDS doesn't have the same level of horizontal scalability that Spanner does. Um, yeah, that, that that makes sense, and and I kind of like I, I guess one of the reasons why again so Spanner has that uh, ability to do sharded SQL queries, mm-hmm. but at the same time like get those like asset consistency across charts. That's not in in any database out there. Um, but 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 I know you you're also kind of like you don't require that strong consistency everywhere from, from how you model things. But, but at the same time, you also hinted at Dynamo. And, and I guess uh, this is my take. Maybe you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. But for anyone listening, that's probably kind of like an intuitive choice, uh, given its like natural partitioning and horizontal scaling capabilities. Is that kind of like wh- why you made that mention? Yeah, Dynamos feels more. If you're looking at the AWS stack, I, um, I feel like most people would intuitively think that Dynamo is the right thing to do here. Um, we didn't choose Dynamo for two reasons. The first is that. Um, we basically optimized our database to be super efficient in the tuple storage. Um, you know, like just requesting a set a, a set of tuples that is typically going to be requested is just going to minimize the amount of pages that are loaded uh, based on how we set up the index. And also for us, just on our AWS pricing basis, I'm not really privy to the details, but we calculated it out and. Dynamo would have just been so much more expensive on like a sheer dollars per um, tuple and QPS basis that um, it would just be much more feasible to use RDS. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and one of the things that, that blew my mind back when we talked a few months ago was that, hey, we, we, we optimize things so far that the, the number of pages read whenever you read tuples is very important. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you want to, you know, minimize uh, how often you actually need to go to disk, um, and you know, y- you end up with a really high um, buffer pool hit rate. So you're effectively somehow managing to read mostly from memory and mostly just within a very small cluster when you do need to go to disk. So you don't end up seeking too much. Uh, and with all that optimization, we kind of found that we were in a pretty decent place uh, with RDS and we didn't have any scaling concerns on like a five to seven year time horizon at the very least. That's great. And it's great that you are kind of like thinking that far ahead. So let's kind of like take people through the journey, right? So the, a new, uh, a new host is added to co-host group or things like that. You might be writing tuples about that kind of like host group membership over to uh, Postgres, so you have an API, you write that tuple. Um, then when you do a check, you, you call this a check API that the paper mentions to check, hey, can this user perform this action? Uh, we also mentioned the caches. What, what caches are you using and, and how are those caches populated? Yeah, uh, one of the key things with the Zanzibar paper that 
you know, it took a few really deep reads to realize was uh, the importance of tiered caching. So we have, you can think of the, there being like three layers, right? The database, the caching layer, and then the orchestrating layer that receives the checks. <clears throat> the key thing here is that there's a cache directly above the database. Um, so suppose I ask for all like um, all the tuples relating to related to like listing ten. Um, that cache is going to be able to do some filtering uh, and have all that data in memory if it's a hit. Uh, and if you know like ten if 10 services are requesting checks on listing 10, it can batch all of the loads into a single one to just minimize the amount of uh, load we generate to our databases. To And this aspect of protecting the databases from duplicate load ended up being super important for us as well. Uh, so that's like one of the really important caches just right in front of the databases, reduces load, does preliminary filtering, um, on the principles that are being checked and so on, just to minimize the amount of data being transferred up. And then even within um, the orchestrator, the, the service that's actually getting the check requests, uh, we have an additional layer of caching. Um, we cache uh, those kind of direct authorizations like a service or a specific principle is authorized um, on certain entities, like kind of a derived concept based on the configuration, as well as um, some tuples that are coming, that are super hot. Uh, we, any tuples that are gonna generate disproportionate load to the database are gonna be also cached client side. Uh, so we end up having these like two layers of caches uh, just with the goal of making things faster and reducing the amount of load that we're sending to RDS and just like optimizing the query pattern so that whatever load does go to the database, it's really efficient to serve. That, that makes sense. So you mentioned a couple of things. One, on the one hand, you mentioned kind of like the orchestration layer that would be kind of like the service, right? So there's a service, the service sends a request to the cache. If it's not there, the request to the database kind of like goes through. When we talk about the, that layer, I guess for caching to be efficient, and again, this is also hinted at in the paper, you need some sort of session affinity, right? In the paper, it's with consistent hashing. How yep. are you implementing that? Yeah, uh, exactly. That's something that you have to do. Um, for us, we have some like 80 uh, different cache shards, um, and you, each entity based on its ID is gonna consistently hash to one of those shards. Um, and all you know, loads for that entity are just gonna end up on the same set of replicas on a shard, um, just deterministically. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, another thing that's um, kind of, you mentioned was like, you're, you're caching some tuples. At what layer are you caching tuples? Because like, caching tuples at the orchestration layer is probably not something that happens, especially because the orchestration layer doesn't interpret those. Actually, we have to cache tuples at both layers. Um, and this is kind of lightly mentioned in the paper. Um, I think they basically call this like hot keys or something like that um, or something it, it, it's basically to reduce 
the impact of a hot uh, entity. So we noticed that some entities just get disproportionately more traffic. Like one entity, one specific entity ID might get, say, like ten thousand uh, checks per second, and you know, within the same entity, um, all the other ones get <laughs> like a hundred or or one or less, uh, and. Because of that, the cash shard that's responsible for that super hot entity ID is going to get completely overwhelmed compared to all the other shards. So we need to we just do some detection of which of these uh, entity IDs is super hot and cache that data on even the orchestration layer so that it doesn't even go to the cache shard. Um, and the amount of, of those we can cache is very limited. So you basically have to just limit it to the ones that are super, super hot. Okay, so so in that case, what you're doing is you're you're caching the result of of like the the cache of the database read query, not necessarily the check, so that like you can pre-compute checks beforehand. So it's it's a mix yeah. of like caching. Are you also doing prefetching in that case? Yes. So we're caching. This is kind of where the word caching almost gets overloaded because yeah, what I just described is caching the result of the database query, not the result of the check. Um, but we also do some caching of the result of the check um, in certain cases. For example, um, just to match the business needs, like you can't make we can't make statements about this generically. But for example, we know that um, suppose say a certain principal type is granted access to a certain entity type, and uh, if it's revoked, it doesn't matter if it gets revoked now or in an hour, it just needs to get revoked within the day. That seems like then when we discover situations like that, that are also high volume, we manage to cache the result, entire result of the check um, for some period of time. That, that makes sense. That's good. And, and thanks for, for sharing. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And, and one of the things that we were starting to look at for kind of like our SaaS implementation, but, but still aren't doing today. Um, Another interesting thing that the paper mentions is is leopard and, and arbitrarily nested groups of, of objects, right? So the, the, mm -hmm. there's complexity when there's lots of nesting because you have to go keep checking, hey, is the user in this group? And if the yep. group has lots of groups, do you have those use cases at Airbnb? Yes, we do have nested groups. Um, and there are a few use cases where the group fan out is really horrendous. Um, you know, like a user, like like sometimes an entity will be part of like basically what is effectively like a thousand groups. And then we have to go to every single cache shard and load, you know, 10, over 10 groups from each cache shard and then fan out from there again. Uh, and that's where Leopard really shines and becomes a necessity. Um, what we found it actually is really interesting, which is that in order to get Hemeji off the ground, we didn't need Leopard for basically an entire year and a half. Um, only, it, at least for Airbnb's use case, um, the nesting was very concentrated all in like basically one entity had really severe nesting. Um, and it was one of the later ones that onboarded. So we didn't need to build it at first, and then we later um, encountered really severe nesting, and it became mandatory. Okay, that, that makes sense. So that was kind of like a, a happy 
mistake or a thing that happened by chance due to kind of like the onboarding or that it wasn't anything that you planned for, right? Yeah, we didn't initially know that it would be like that, um, but it just worked out. Good. And and w when you do this, like again, the, the group unnesting, how are you doing that? Are you just unnesting uh, what would be known as like user set membership? Where like in the paper you would say, hey, this user belongs to this user set because like the relation or are you denormalizing everything all the way to interpreting unions and intersections and, and user set rewrites from the namespace configuration? Which one are you doing? Uh, it's just the first one. Uh, once you throw in unions and intersections in the, in the group uh, traversal path, it gets uh, exponentially more difficult to do the, do the denormalization. And what we've actually found is that, at least for our business use case, that doesn't really come up. So it's sufficient just to basically um, denormalize away um, like a single layer of uh, user set memberships um, or what we call references, basically. Yeah, that, that makes sense. One of the benefits of doing that is that you don't have to re-index things whenever the authorization model changes, because that's kind of like the, the user set data is all part of the database, whereas the rewrites and the union, like the set operators are all part of the, the authorization model, the namespaces configuration. Yeah, that's what we found was just like, if someone added something to a union, we'd have to completely re-index and that would just be impractical. Yeah. So uh, how often does the authorization model change and, and how do teams work uh, on like making those changes in a, in a kind of like reliable uh, fashion? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I think our authorization model changes maybe not that often. Um, you know, sometimes once or twice a week, um, we will make tweaks to the authorization model, but this is something I believe we also observe from Google, which is that the, it doesn't, or like Zanzibar doesn't necessarily plan for you to change your authorization model like um, once an hour. Uh, <clears throat> authorization model changes are relatively infrequent and are kind of expected to be rolled out cautiously. So it, when someone makes an authorization model change along with the necessary tests, um, we kind of do an incremental staged rollout. Uh, you know, the new authorization model will run for say 1% of requests, then 10% of requests and so on in a canary and eventually, and just slowly ramp up while um, automatically just monitoring authorization and error and latency rates um, to make sure that it's basically happening safely and as expected. So uh, and is this something that you handle kind of like in an internal proxy layer or do you provide a mechanism for your internal clients to specify which version of the namespaces configurations slash authorization model to use when they're making a change, basically? Like they go change an variable or something like that and they start using a new one. So clients don't actually specify which version they want when they call check, but instead developers can basically choose to say like, it's, it's almost like deploying a new schema version. They can say to basically start a deploy of a new um, authorization model and it will run through this canary process automatically against all of Himeji. 
Okay, and, and in those cases, naturally, all of the tuples remain the same. All that you're doing is you're ch changing how the quote orchestration layer, the stateless layer, stateless without considering the caches, yeah. uh, <laughs> handles those those queries, right? Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, another big thing in the in the paper is the notion of uh, a suki, and and the importance of external consistency for Google and, and the new enemy mm -hmm. problem. Um, what are your takes, or, or at least what are Airbnb's takes on it, and, and what's your need for Suki's? Uh, there's, there's no specific mention of, of how you use them on the blog post. Uh, we just kind of like, what, what led me to that question? We did basically an audit of all the production authorization models and how they are checked um, when, at the time of design. Uh, and we essentially found zero need for strong consistency aside from the concept of read after write. So we essentially decided to support only the read after write concept where you know you can uh, create an entity uh, create a tuple for an entity as that entity is being created or modified and then come back and do a check. Uh, against that newly created entity by declaring that you are in the same request path. But outside of that, we actually haven't had any need for strong external consistency. Um, it's just really rare to have a business need for, say, granting or revoking someone's permission. And within like second or within like milliseconds, they're here uh, trying to do uh, exactly what you revoke them from. And even if they're able to do it, uh, we haven't found uh, really business needs where it's so sensitive that, um, you know, like the moment that the permission is meant to be revoked, um, if they're able to continue doing it for like a few seconds or a minute or so, that it's a concern. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. One of the things, again, like we, we've also been thinking about and seeing is that what typically might happen, even in, in these kind of like multi-region environments, is that you might be changing a specific permission. So you, you might be kind of like writing some tuples and you expect to be able to read them. That's kind of like that read your own rights uh, type mm -hmm. of consistency. But by the time you let someone know that you made that change or that they, they have that access, it takes a few minutes, a few hours, right? And, and again, you, you don't want replication lag to be at that level, but still, uh, it's different than, hey, it, it needs to be instant. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is that like Suki's add complexity to clients, right? Clients have to manage them. Clients have to pick when to use them. Clients have to tie them back to their original model to know kind of like which Suki to use for, for each object. Um, and it's not trivial. It's, it's very easy to make mistakes with that as well. And our clients are really quite used to declaring that they're in a basically read after write kind of object creation. I'm about to read my own write flow. Um, there's a lot of that in our reservation or listing or user creation flows. Um, so it was natural to add, um, and we haven't observed any problems at all with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that, that we, you and I discussed a few months ago when, when we chatted was uh, uh, there's uh, a couple of things that aren't in the paper but, uh, that, that are useful. And I think one of them was called um, virtual groups, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, yes. Can you talk a bit about those? Yeah. Um, 
this is because Airbnb has a lot of, of kind of request contextual um, authorization that happens in a uh, semi-secure manner. What is request contextual for anyone that might be listening and, and not familiar with that, that term? Yeah, it, it, that's basically the idea that your authorization depends on um, not just the relationships that you have in the data or something that's declared, but aspects of how you're making a request to Airbnb. Think where you're making a request from. Are you in the UK? Are you in China? Are you in the US? Um, things like, are you in an experiment treatment group? Um, is your language set to something? Uh, all of these kind of contextual things that can change on a per request basis uh, sometimes work their way into the authorization model, sometimes because of policy. Um, for example, start viewing a listing while in a certain locale or something like that. Uh, and that sometimes needs to be strongly enforced at the data layer. So virtual groups is a way to say, uh, declare a group membership to say that a user is, say, part of the user is currently in the UK group. Um, and that is set um, by determining based on the request uh, metadata that the user is in the UK. And we treat that within Hemeji as a tuple that is true and matches, uh, almost as if we had fetched it from the database itself. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So let, let me kind of like try to put put the full picture together, both for me and, and anyone that's missing. So let's say you have a requirement that, that is, hey, someone has permissions to view a listing unless they are in specific geographic regions, okay? Mm -hmm. So at, I guess at listing creation, the first thing you do is you, you need to kind of like create tuples to say who is excluded from, uh, what regions are excluded, right? Something like region uh, is a namespace and you need to say region ID or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you define kind of like region membership and you add that to an excluded viewer uh, group, uh, sorry, yep. in relation to the, yeah, okay. And then you need to go to the namespace configuration and you need to say, hey, there's a, a kind of like a set difference operator here, which is anyone that can do this, but is not in this excluded group. Is that kind of like the next thing that you might do? Exactly. Okay. And then the, the third thing you do is you, you send this check request, and in the check request, you send a tuple that says that the user is a member or, or is coming from that particular region. That's what the tuple says. Um, so does that all tie together correctly? Um, almost. I think the, the part at the end where you send the tuple that the user is in a particular region, the key thing there is that this is where it somewhat ties to authentication, is that the data that the information that a user is in a specific region needs to be authenticated. Uh, it needs to be signed by a, an, um, an authority that is trusted to the authorization system so that no okay. particular service can just improperly declare that they're in any random region. Um, okay, aside so, from so that, there, that's accurate. Okay, so there, there's a, a trusted issuer or a set of trusted issuers that are kind of like Himeji trusts um, and whenever that one of those signs a particular, I guess, kind of like credential or request payload, they can include these kind of like tuples in, in the request payload. So as long as you trust the, the, origin, the issuer of the credential, you can go and like run the, the check like that. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Um, 
And in practice, there's uh, slightly less secure ways you can do this. For example, you can just trust that your upstream is passing you the correct request metadata, and you could extract it yourself in Hemeji and so on. Um, and we have that as like some intermediate solutions for like policy rules that are not sensitive. That makes sense. Um, and then uh, when you are using, like, how do you consider those tuples when making queries to the cache and to the database? Do you have like a, a layer that essentially kind of like takes the request payload and, and abstracts the notion of like the source, whether the, the tuples come from the payload or from the cache? Essentially, when we're traversing the configuration, they're going to get resolved when you traverse the configuration without going to the cache or the database or anything. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's it's essentially, normally there's an abstraction that says, hey, go get this from the database. And then next time you evaluate the configuration, if it's been properly fetched from the database, then we'll try to res uh, see if it, it uh, resolves or not. For a virtual group, you can just resolve it right away based on the information passed to you in the request metadata. Makes sense. Um, are there any other concepts that like, you know, aren't in the paper, but you also added to your system because you thought they were useful or, or necessary? Hmm. I think there's several uh, concepts maybe um, that might have been lightly touched on by the blog post. Um, for example, one concept that we have is the dissembling of an entity, or I guess a Zanzibar namespace into parts. Um, and that's just for a logical grouping uh, of fields, essentially. Like, you know, a listing can be dissembled into its description, its location, you know, its Wi-Fi info or whatnot. Um, that's not something that's really in the Zanzibar paper, but something we found practical to implement to just make it easier to integrate with data services. Okay, that makes sense. So that's, you found or you implemented a way in which you, you sort of like logically group namespace configuration pieces yeah. in, into different hierarchies or, or composites. Is, is that kind of like how it, how it works? Exactly. And this is roughly because Airbnb doesn't have, like it wouldn't make sense for Airbnb to have you know, like a listing description namespace and like a listing amenity namespace and all and like one namespace for each of these. Um, as Airbnb tends to a model of having like very few namespaces, but a few like really, really big and complex namespaces. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So you, you that probably is useful for, for tooling, not just integration with other services. Yeah, and we ultimately ended up investing a lot of time after initially building out like the core infrastructure into tooling. Um, it's, you know, Zanzibar is actually a really complicated concept for just any product, product developer who has no prior experience working in authorization to wrap their head around and to work with. So we had to build a lot of tooling both around how data and tuples make their way into Hemeji um, and how to keep it consistent you know, the concept of a relationship being represented in someone else's database and having it in sync with Hemeji. And um, also around how to visualize, debug, and query and control how a data service integrates with Hemeji while just like 
maintaining reliability and observability. We had to build a lot of these toolings that weren't really um, mentioned in the Zanzibar paper just because of the nature of how our team is uh, responsible for a little bit more um, to, to get the adoption we need. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 something we've we've seen again talking to to other companies that have uh, built Zanzibar-like solutions. For example, some of the the Carta folks mentioned the the internal education aspect, but but this goes beyond Zanzibar-like solutions and and more towards any internal platform team building products for for like internal products, but still products for other things. Right? You want to do that, like make things simple and, and education and, and all of those things. Um, do, do you have any use cases for uh, time-based permissions and, and time-based tuples? Um, we do, and this is actually something that we had gone a little bit back and forth on. Um, it almost feels natural to try to provide the ability to manage um, when a tuple should be created or deleted based on time. Um, you know, giving an expiration time or so on. What we found after looking at basically the first three use cases that were time-based is that there was so much business uh, and product logic intertwined with the concept of when to create and when to expire a tuple that there is no... Um, kind of platform-like solution that we could provide. This is because, for example, if you think about the life cycle of a trip on Airbnb, um, you know, someone makes a booking, has a check-in time, has a checkout time. You know, there might be things that you want to reveal close to check-in, close to checkout, um, and maybe not after checkout or so on. Like, if, if you define all these rules but the check-in time and check-out time are mutable. All of a sudden, not only are you managing the time when you think a tuple should be created and deleted, you also have to manage the concept of when these times need to be changed, um, how to look up a scheduled creation and deletion, um, the product requirements for when a tuple should be created or deleted. And we realized we'd basically be completely re-implementing a complex scheduling system so long story short, um, there is no concept of time in uh, Hemeji, and it actually simplifies, uh, it simplifies the architecture and performance um, greatly. That, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's one of those things where like, there might be simple cases, right? Where you say, hey, I want this tuple to either start applying or stop applying at a time. Mm -hmm. But when you go towards like any of the edges, it, it gets more complex. and and this is like any other trade-off, right? It probably adds complexity to the system, it adds to your surface, and it needs to provide a lot of value for teams in order to be worth baking into the core. Yep, and we just never found any cases that were actually as dead simple as it seemed. Um, and I maybe one theory that I have is that like that ultra-simple case you know, if it really is that simple, it's not. It's also not that valuable for us to provide a system for managing it either, uh, because it's already simple for them to deal with. Yeah, that, that makes sense. 
Um, another kind of like big thing in the paper, and kind of like after this, we're going to talk a bit more about kind of like the, some of your uh, Airbnb specific use cases, but it's it's a search use case, right? The paper mentions Leopard, uh, uh, and like uh, you, you can use the Watch API to build your own indexes. The paper mentions that search use cases might result in a lot of checks while you're checking the search results. So this is when the, the challenge when you're trying to do something where you're trying to do a search over a set of entities, and it, this might be full text search, and you might need to do paging and sorting. How are you solving that at Airbnb? <laughs> this is one of the hardest problems for us to solve. Um, and I say that because it's one of the core queries that is issued on a regular basis. Um, if you're a host or a guest, you want to see the, the listings that you're responsible for or the reservations that you're responsible for, the trips that you're going to go on. And all of these are implicitly permission aware of queries. Um, same for if you're searching for a new listing, you don't want to see a listing that you can't book. Um, all of these are permission aware queries and it's there's no super, super easy solution to it. The only solution that we found and that we saw implemented based on um, Zanzibar is to effectively publish mutations for when permissions change. So our search index will have to listen and say um, to when a listing becomes visible or not visible to, uh, to be searched for. Um, or when someone gains the necessary access to manage a listing. Um, that means one of our Elasticsearch clusters that's responsible for um, searching through the listings that you can manage is gonna listen to that and update an internal index that maps, that kind of denormalizes out um, from you know your user ID to the listings that you are responsible for. Um, so that's kind of how we've solved it, I guess. I don't know if it's really solved it, but basically, we concluded that you have to publish mutations, index them into a secondary index like Elasticsearch or something like that, and um, denormalize it there and try to keep it up to date. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And this is kind of like one of those things where what you're trying to do is you're trying to kind of like maximize the probability or increase the percentage of the total search results return that the user will actually have access to. You can always kind exactly. of like go check later. But like doing that uh, iteration and like cursor paging, that, that's a complex thing. Because what, what you're essentially doing, if, if we step back from Sansuar, it's like this is a, a multiple service join together with search pagination, etc. This is not the, a trivial problem to solve anywhere. Exactly. And we treat search slightly different from pagination, like naive pagination as well. Like, um, and it's, it, there's really no like perfect solution to it. I feel like um, when you say, when you think about like pagination, you could theoretically get a page. It, like say you're going to a DB with a limit of a hundred, you could get a page of, you know, 99 things. And one thing that you don't have access to uh, and you got to filter that out and go back to the DB if you really want to fill your page. Um, there's no perfect solution to that in the worst case um, that we've found, um, aside from just to filter it out and either make it clear to clients that they might get an incomplete page or have to go back to the database and um, try to get another page. Yeah, yeah. And the problem gets worse because 
before you do the query, you don't know the how many of those hundred results the user will have access to. So it's, you 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 might do the query and you might say, hey, they have access to twenty out of hundred. Okay, I might need to do five more of these. But you have to kind of like constantly be reestimating, um, and, and it's it's very hard if you're trying to provide a predictable latency experience, uh, which I guess you are. Yeah, there's like two strategies that we found um, are somewhat helpful to mitigate the worst case. The first is to kind of see, how, determine, like probabilistically how often you get something you don't have access to in your page. And most of the time for us, this is very not often. Uh, so, you know, if you, someone comes to you with, you know, a page size of 100 you know, you could just request maybe like 102 items and occasionally they don't have access to one of them, but you've still filled the page like 99.9% .9 of the time. And it's and it only becomes a tail issue then. The other kind of trick that we apply more broadly, I wouldn't say necessarily a trick, but it's just like um, a design principle is that for these kind of paginated views, we try to define a permission somewhere of the concept of, you know, can you load this paginated view at all, which is not 100% accurate, but is a, a good enough proxy for uh, whether you should be able to see all the th things in the collection or not. Um, and right, so yeah, that way you kind of naturally prevent someone who has access to nothing or a very small percentage of the items from uh, even getting to the paginated view. Yeah, yeah. You're on the one hand, you're playing with the numbers game with the hey, it's very unlikely that you're searching for something you don't have access in the specific Airbnb case. That's mm -hmm. uh, because of, of, I guess, like the, the nature of the business, right? You you probably usually have access to most things, especially yeah. if you're in a particular view. Uh, so that kind of like helps, uh, and then like you, you narrow things down with that higher level permission first. Um, exactly. We we. We've been talking about latency. We've been talking about like views and, and presentations. Uh, Airbnb again is, is a big uh, consumer app, a big site. Are, do you do anything with permissions uh, in terms of like rendering and with the CDN layer, front ends, and, and mobile? Uh, is there anything happening there? Uh, not on the CDN layer, from what I'm aware. Um, on the mobile, or I guess more so the front end basis. Uh, there's the separate concept of like, you know, can I view this UI component? Um, and the permissions there, we tend to try to draw the line between a data permission and a product permission. And sometimes these are similar, you know, like say I'm able to edit the, you know, the description for a listing and I'm on the listing management view and I've gotten there successfully. You do want to check that, you know, the, before rendering the listing description editing component that I actually have that permission. Um, and you want to check all the components on that view before, before um, rendering them. Otherwise, you know, when you try to go and make the mutation, it's going to fail. Um, and those situations are relatively cut and dry. Sometimes we see these more, sometimes like more ambiguous situations where someone's not real, not permitted to see a UI component because it doesn't make sense in the product. Um, but, you know, they really are allowed to, you know, interact with the data. Like, for example, maybe it doesn't make sense to show someone, um, you know, your, your host profile when uh, you're 
in, in like a specific scenario in the booking flow or something like that. Um, so the product has some kind of logic in the front end that says, hey, don't show this under these circumstances. Maybe it's an experiment. Maybe it's a policy um, for a specific um, product, even if someone has access to it. And that's what we try to differentiate where saying, hey, um, certain certain kinds of you know view level or component level permissions aren't actually data permissions. You know, you, you don't have to manage them in Hemeji. You can just write your specific product logic that's really specific to your product, and uh, we don't really care about it because it's not causing any risk of um, you know an incorrect user experience or a data leak or anything. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I, I like the the notion of like there are kind of like control and data permissions, right? Uh, on yeah. the one hand, you these are the things that you can do, and the other one is like these are the things that you can see, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a typical distinction when you're building a UI, right? There's there's the kind of like the list of things that you have access to, and then also the list of actions that you can perform. You want to build the UI considering the actions, but at the same time, okay, on the back end, you still have to verify that those things can happen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how did you kind of like validate uh, what you were building with other teams? And we kind of like touched on that. You said, hey, we did some research and we looked at like the time-based cases. We looked at like, hey, we need to go all in. What was that journey like to say, hey, we have this idea. Is this the right fit before you actually built it? Hmm. Actually, validating this before started building it um, was very tricky uh, because it's so much work to implement something like Zanzibar. Um, it's really hard to build a proof of concept. Um, we just had to kind of look at all the existing authorization scenarios, look at what Zanzibar could do with its flexible relationships and its uh, configuration language, and basically come to the conclusion that all of it was possible to be modeled by Zanzibar and it would theoretically perform well. Um, that that was kind of a big leap of faith that we had to take before you know diving into implementing Zanzibar over the course of like three to six months um, in, in its like most MVP form. The, from there, once it was built, the challenge was, um, like you said, actually moving some of the existing authorization scenarios onto Hemeji uh, via writing the configuration, ingesting the data, and starting to add those checks into the data layer. Um, and the tricky part there was just uh, making sure that we had the right authorization rules. Um, in certain cases, the authorization rules were really well-defined and well-known um, because the, the, the teams that owned the data and the entities um, had done a really good job of centralizing that knowledge and that logic. And we just had to do basically a side-by-side -side comparison running Hemeji against the existing logic. And that was straightforward to roll out. Um, in some other cases, it was incredibly difficult to roll out because, um, you know, maybe the, in one case, the data was, you know, owned by multiple teams and no, no one knew the comprehensive set of authorization rules um, for that piece of data. It was kind of built up 
um, across many systems inconsistently over time. And we basically had to do a lot of code reading and reverse engineering, um, you know, running basically permissions checks in shadow mode and seeing when they failed and trying to dive into each failure and seeing if uh, it was intended or not. Um, and doing that chasing yeah. took a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, especially if, if you had a lot of logic already built, but that, but fortunately, again, like that, one of the benefits of doing that, of like shadow write, shadow read, uh, and then assess is, is very interesting if you, if, well, to prevent customer failures, right? It takes exactly. a while, but it's, it's a very reliable way of, of making those changes. Um, one of the things that's in the blog post and we talked, we touched on is like the, there's a UI tool for debugging and, and one of tasks. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, that do, do teams have access to like the, the entire set of tuples or, or is there a way to kind of like grant some engineers temporary access to a few namespaces, kind of like a, an FGA, Himeji into Himeji thing where <laughs> an engineer might have access to a subset of namespaces, things like that? Uh, we don't have any such controls. Um, all of our namespace configurations are checked in as code. Um, so anyone can go and read the rules as long as they have access to the code base. Um, and for the, the tuples that are actually stored, um, those are also pretty much accessible to anyone with data level access. Um, and this is maybe more about the access model for engineers at Airbnb, but it's it's not that granular. Um, so <laughs> I, I can see a need no. for it, but not necessarily for us yet. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. No, we've been thinking about some of those use cases, especially if you think about kind of like building uh, share widgets in, in the front end directly, yeah. where you might be able to accept uh, a token that, uh, a user has in their browser and yeah. if you trust whoever signed that token then you can say hey can this user read uh, tuples for a specific object or can they do things on a specific namespace uh, so we're starting to explore that like meta FGA into FGA uh, and, and we're working on a POC and I was wondering if, if you if you guys had something like that we don't have that on like an engineer basis um, there's not really a need to restrict access to our internal engineers but we do have some similar concepts on like a service basis. For example, for a particular namespace, the ability to um, mutate the, the the actual authorization logic is is limited to a specific set of individuals. Um, the ability to actually write tuples about a specific namespace is mutated is limited to a specific set of uh, service or user identities, um, and that's something we declare and allow controlling for in the configuration. Okay, so, so that's a, a config level setting, mm -hmm. but it's not something that you necessarily store within Himeji because well, we mentioned this earlier, like you don't have that many namespaces, but they are fairly complex. Yeah, and we don't have a need for super granular controls, but it's certainly possible to have super granular controls. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what are the, the latency numbers that, that you both uh, like look for and see with the system? And are there any pathological cases that you're still figuring out? Yeah, we mainly aim to be compatible with being parallel with the data layer. So that means that our median latency needs to approximately match our client's database median latency. 
Um, you know, our P99 needs to approximately match our client's database P99 so that they can run a Hemeji check and fetch from the database in parallel and not have any impact on the total request latency. So in, in practice for us, that means we target a median of about three milliseconds and a P99 of, of between 15 and 30 milliseconds. And that, that we've been able to achieve pretty consistently. Um, especially for the cases where we are integrated at the data layer. Um, where we see pathological cases arise is mostly with regards to nested groups. Um, sometimes, and, and this doesn't happen too often at the data layer, but sometimes uh, UI components, the rules for rendering them and um, basically product level permissions will sometimes just issue queries that are incredibly expensive to compute. Um, and that's where we need to continue to refine the, basically our equivalent of a leopard indexer to bring down latencies in those edge cases. That's probably where latencies get the worst for us. Um, the other case where it can get bad is when we see really poor traffic patterns um, from end users uh, or internal systems. For example, uh, if, you know, if someone, if the listings uh, ecosystem is requesting the same set of a million listings for days, and then suddenly decides to request a completely different set of listings, they're going to be hitting a completely cold cache, and they're going to see some temporary degradation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the, the cold cache problem is, is a usual thing, but again, it's it's not a, a normal uh, use case, right? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the latency numbers. What are the like? What's the RPS? So it's one thing to do that. Uh, I, and I know it's it's a fairly large number, right? It's one thing to do that, that oh, I get 100 RPS or 10 RPS, and another thing is like, hey, if you're processing thousands of requests per second. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'll just look off to the side right now. I mean, we're handling, on a batch basis, we're handling about 500,000 requests per second um, in batches of, on average, three. So about uh, checking about 1.5 million entities every second at this point. So we're not maybe like 10 times below Google scale for when they publish their paper, but we're kind of getting there. Well, yeah, an order of magnitude is, is not that much. You can just say one order of magnitude. <laughs> yeah, really, it's, it's, it's within just an order of magnitude. And that, that's kind of the, that latency requirement is actually a huge motivation for how we design the system as well, because you know, you can do things pretty differently at like 100 QPS versus uh, 500,000 QPS. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and that's that's one thing that in this type of system skews a lot of, of your design mm -hmm. because there are things that you just can't do for the sake of latency. And, and that's, of course, a very big trade-off. Uh, but it, it's what pays off to make that seamless, right? You're, you're essentially handing authorization of the data layer for everyone you need to make that fast. Yep. Um, to, to close things, and again, this, this has been a great chat, what are the, the key things that you learned, maybe one or two that you say, hey, like th these things I hadn't thought of before, or these are the, the things that I, I take away from, from this whole Himeji and authorization at Airbnb experience, not just necessarily Himeji. Oh, wow. Um, key learnings. There's maybe several. Um, there were, in terms of what surprised us the most, um, I think the first thing is how much of a benefit we got from really tailoring our um, 
you know, just the implementation details to the authorization model. Like, I think I've kind of mentioned a few cases in this talk where we really tailored um, how we optimized to meet how we we observe the authorization model to be. And the amount of latency and performance gain that we've been able to achieve from that has been really tremendous. Um, and having super good latency and performance really means you can toss the system just like everywhere. Um, and that makes security super easy. So that, that was one thing that we learned that was really interesting. You know, when you're reading Zanzibar paper, it seems like kind of a generic system, but as you tune it, it can become, uh, you know, like way more powerful as you kind of like mix Zanzibar and really integrate it tightly with where you know your authorization model can go. The, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Another interesting thing that we learned is that uh, <laughs> this might seem really obvious, but it's actually really important before going down this path that you um, that you really deeply understand what the authorization model is. Um, and we knew what some of the authorization model was for certain entities. And for some ent other entities, we didn't know, and neither did anyone else know what the authorization model was. And in those cases, that's when we hit the most challenges because you're kind of trying to fit the authorization model into any existing optimizations you made into um, how you've already tried to define and style your um, namespace configurations and so on. And um, after making that mistake one or two times, we now always take the approach of like 100% documenting the existing authorization model um, really thoroughly before trying to make any new adoption. But in retrospect, I think if we had known all of the I mean, it wouldn't have been possible, but if we had known all of the authorization models um, at Airbnb, it would have just made the entire process faster by probably like an entire year. Uh, yeah, that, that's something that, uh, that's that's a great takeaway and something that at least uh, you are seeing again with, with all of those internal clients. I, I see that a lot as well with, with the team uh, at Otsilo Labs when, when we talk to customers and prospects. Um, the first thing is, of actually being able to express your authorization model in, in plain English or any mm -hmm. uh, native language that someone might speak. And, yep. and that's uh, like people are tend to use roles and, and they might say, oh, it's always been like this. But like what you want and what and how it should be are, are usually different from how it is. And, and in some yep. cases, you might even not know. Exactly. It's It, it really surprised us how little, you know, just product owners or you know, data owners knew of their own authorization model in their ability to express it. They just didn't know how it actually worked or how it should have worked. Yeah, and, and on top of that, you need to add that the paradigm shift around like relationship-based access control away from role-based and, and all of those things that also make it a bit more complex. Yeah, role-based access control is like the great cancer of access control because it, it just works kind of great until it completely falls apart super fast. Yeah, it, it has some, uh, again, like it, it's one of those things that you can use. And, and again, we, we use it a lot for a lot of things. But it, when you kind of like get to the edges, uh, either like from scale perspective or from a like dynamism perspective, it starts to fall off. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a trap. <laughs>
almost. Uh, yeah. Okay, man. Again, uh, I really appreciate your time. This has been a great chat. Uh, we'll be publishing the the recording soon to YouTube um, and making it available for anyone that might have missed the part or, or a lot of people in kind of like our social media audience. Uh, but I really appreciate it, Alan, and, and it was great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, bye everyone. Bye bye.